Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Hello, I'm speaking today with Pat Greer, who's in New South Wales, Australia. Pat's a cousin of mine. He left Zimbabwe in 1980, moved to New South Wales, and within a decade became CEO of Ramsey Healthcare, recognized as one of Australia's biggest private healthcare organizations. So Pat, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Pete, fantastic. I've been looking forward to this, and funny enough, we have never actually really met, and yet we've heard of each other many, many times. So this is a privilege to be talking to you, Pete. Well, absolutely. I mean, we did meet at your place in Rhodesia in 1979. That would, be, would have been just before you left the country. But we'll get to your early life later. First, tell me, should I be addressing you as Sir Pat? What is the order of Australia? Oh, <laughs> uh, well... I was very fortunate that um, somebody, a few people recognized me um, as somebody willing to give an award. I was very, very surprised, uh, but very privileged. Um, through my work um, at Ramsey's, and in particular, um, the whole healthcare system of Australia, I was fortunate enough to get into healthcare, which I loved. It's a people, people, people uh, industry. And that's been my forte or my love in my life being uh, involved in people. And I just found my, my, my base when I got into Ramsey Healthcare. I knew nothing about healthcare. Um, and in fact, I had to walk around with a piece of paper that my wife, Deline, gave me to tell me what an orthopod was and <laughs> what uh, a gynecologist was and so on. That was important to get those two uh, right. Um, and I just found my way very... I just found it very, very exciting being part of healthcare. And I took a leadership role in healthcare and took over the private hospital sector, um, the private hospitals association, and for 10, 12 years. And through Ramsey's and, and myself and so on, we managed to slowly change and improve and make the private hospital sector of Australia one of the best private sectors in the world. So through the work I did with government lobbying and growing the private sector in Australia, I was awarded the Australia, um, uh, an award of Australia. And, so, and, um, and is and, that similar to what in the UK? Is that like an OBE or something? Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's more likely a bit higher than that. If I was in the UK, it would be a SIR. Wow. Um, so um, an AOAM is what I've got. Um, in, a, in that would be a sir, and then an AC in Australia, order of command, in Australia, well, that would be a lord. So um, I'm in the, the second tier, I suppose. Yes, you would um, call me a sir, but many years ago, Australia went their own way with their own Australia awards, um, and I was very fortunate to get one of them. Well, they went back and forth, didn't they? They, they dropped it, um, and then they brought it back in, and then they dropped it again, depending on... Because you went through so many different governments within about five years, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I think <laughs> it, was, it was a revolving door. I think within five or six years, we went through about eight different 
prime ministers or leaderships and so on. It was a, it's been a disaster. Um, it seems to be settling down now, but yeah, Australia had a revolving door as, as premiers and leaderships and things like that. So yeah, well, and each one, not each one, but some of them have come in think, saying we're going to become a republic. Um, and then uh, the, the, the vote for republic has been knocked back a few times. So it's an interesting saga that people here still see themselves very, very much Australian, but they don't want to give up their relationship uh, with the crown. I mean, the, the award is obviously very well deserved. I mean, you left Zimbabwe with your wife, Deline, and were all three of your children born in Zim, in Rhodesia? All three. Jason, yeah. Zane, and Tristan. And you, yes. left, you left in 1980, by all accounts, with quite literally the clothes on your back and a rucksack each for the kids. Yet within, and you can correct me with this, within eight years, you had taken Ramsey Healthcare from an operation with eight hospitals and a very comfy annual turnover of 200 million Australian dollars a year to one of the most successful healthcare organizations in Australia. Today, and I'm going to boast for you, it has over 100 hospitals in Australia, Indonesia and the UK, and has a turnover of around 2.7 billion Australian dollars. So I guess my question is, what's your secret? I guess my secret is very much knowing how good I am, what are my strengths, and what are my weaknesses. And very early on, I felt that I, I said, I want to be a businessman. I, I like the eye of business. I, I read a lot of business books and so on. Um, but I realized that I'm not the worst kid to be a businessman. I, you know, I'm not one of these um, guys that can automatically see this and see that and and uh, and lead 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 so very early on i learned that the way to get things done if you can't do it energize people around you and so i guess my success has been very much realizing that yes i've had a vision for myself i want to do well in business and so on but i'm not going to be able to do it on my own and i've always enjoyed being with people and by you know energizing people i've become successful by what i call leading from behind uh, and that's been my success and uh, and that's been the success of ramsey's i, I developed a, a very special culture at ramsey's called the ramsey way and it was all about people feeling good about their job wanting to do well and then with ramsey's being a success they felt of being a success and so it's, it's a whole circle and i guess that's been my success realizing i'm not a whiz kid but there are a lot of people around me that are much better than me. But if I can energize them and give them direction, it's amazing what you can achieve. That's yeah. been my reason for success. Yeah, the Ramsey way. I mean, it, it, it sounds like an Australian soap opera, but it's, it's been an incredible success, obviously. Um, but it couldn't have been easy. I know you as a very gentle soul. And being this high up in business, you have to, well, break a few eggs in order to make an omelet. Um, and I don't think you, <laughs> I don't think you were popular with every single media out there. Can I, can I share a couple of comments from a couple of the publications um, about you? Um, he's a marketing man selling his own convictions and himself. 
there is consequently a trace of overconfidence in his statements as he's interviewed about his background. There's a little arrogance in his cock-a-hoop comments about Ramsey's successes. Whether this confidence will leave, lead him to overreach and stumble remains to be seen. Has he bitten off too much? Some are wary of his enthusiasm about the aged care. Now, in hindsight, was that a fair comment? Yes, I think so. <laughs> um, I would rather be called uh, uh, optimistic, aggressively optimistic to a certain extent, as long as it's well-founded. In other words, I was leading an, an organization that when I joined, um, it was virtually, um, I wouldn't go as far as bankrupt, but it was virtually there. Um, I needed to give everybody a bit of a feeling that there was a future with this company and that if we um, follow a vision, which I said, uh, we will make it. And you have to be a bit of, bit of cock-a-hoop in that to say, guys, trust me, let's go forward. And while I talk about leadership from behind, you also have to be seen to be putting your head on the block and saying, I'm willing to, to do this, this, this. You do it with me and I promise you, we will be successful. So I think there's a fair amount of that in there. That, that, I hadn't read that, um, but yeah, I think that and, um, another book called, another uh, yeah, book that I was in called me a bit of a rascal. I think it was a rascal well, or something like that. Well, I think that is a bit of me. Um, uh, I've tried not to be too serious about everything, but willing to give a bit of a laughter and a joke, even when things were tough. I try to lighten it to say, hey, guys, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I think that's a very fair comment. Um, and I'd rather be called that than somebody who's meek and mild and doesn't know where he's going. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, another publication went straight for the jugular. But I mean, I might I should point out at this stage, I think there were more positive things than negative. But this one said he's blind to its many failures and its exorbitant costs. He ignores the absence of an alternate to the private for-profit health service in that country. Um, that seems a bit unfair, given what you have achieved, uh, particularly with psychiatric treatment programs. And also, I think, maybe your greatest achievement, the 30% health fund rebate. Can you t tell us about those two things? So, Pete, I guess, um, first of all, you, you've got to have a vision for whatever you, either your own life or um, your business or whatever, then you've got to say, but how do we get there? It's all very well having these great visions and so on. But if you don't have a, a roadmap uh, and see all the pitfalls and so on, you just don't get there. So one of the problems that, that I faced when I took over Ramsey's was that we were mainly all psychiatric hospitals at that stage. Um, and the health funds were pulling out of covering psych because it's expensive. And at the same time, there was a decline in health insurance. So the big question is, what do you do? So the first thing I did was say, hey, Ramsey is not the greatest run organization, hasn't got great credibility and so on. So the first thing that I did is I really got ourselves involved in better treatment, better programs, better outcomes, research and so on to give us credibility in psych. And then I said, okay, now that we're getting credibility, I've got to prove to government that losing, health, losing psychiatric care in healthcare in Australia would be a huge loss. Um, and I managed to convince government to legislate that health funds have to cover psychiatric care. Now, if we hadn't 
sorted out our own house and proved that we were making great um, um, uh, programs and treatments and, and making great progress there, um, we wouldn't have been able to convince government to uh, legislate to cover site. The important factor there is I could see that unless we get government behind us, we will not have a future. But the way to get government behind us is to prove to government that the healthcare system is made up of both private and public. And at that stage, public was huge and very disdainful of the private. So the reason why um, the private were looked down about is that our credibility was bad. We weren't really doing a great job. We were doing minor surgeries and so on and so on and so on. So I said, we've really got to lift our game and become worthwhile to Australia and to the politicians. So two things that came out of that um, uh, action of lifting the game was one, well, first of all, that's when I joined the Private Hospitals Association to say, come on guys, we've got to lift our game. We can't get um, any attention from the uh, government. So having lifted our game, getting greater credibility and getting better involved, getting more involved in quality outcomes and so on, we could then go to government and say, hey, let's develop what I termed a, a balanced healthcare system in Australia, not just all public, 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 which you are plowing money in with not a hell of a lot of return. Um, if we can develop a private to coordinate and um, complement the public system, you will then have the best of both worlds. So, I've improved to government, not only on the psychiatric side, but on general surgery and so on, that if you encourage people into health insurance um, by giving a, a rebate, in other words, reducing the price of health insurance, people will come into private health insurance, which will in turn relieve the pressure on the public system. So anything you pay to increase people into private is actually reducing the cost for you in public and the two together will produce an overall balanced healthcare system that I believe one day will prove to be one of the best in the world. And interesting enough, during this COVID-19, the public and the private have been working together and it's been a phenomenal success as far as healthcare is concerned. And we would not have that position if we had not been 20 years ago bringing up the status of the private sector. So, I foresaw, and so did my colleagues, and so on, we saw that a private sector could come to the party and develop what we now call the balanced healthcare system of Australia. So that's why I got very involved in politics and leading the way. I guess go back to the question is, if you have a vision, you've also got to see the potholes, which was the decline of private health insurance and the decline of the private status. And how do you overcome those potholes, not just sit there, go out and prove to, first of all, that you can do this, 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 and aim for an outcome. And the outcome was, in fact, the private sector moved from being only about 25% of the market to about 50-50 of the market. And we've got one of the best healthcare systems because of this in the world. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, and you mentioned the COVID flattening the curve, trying to take the pressure off the, uh, the, the public sector. Um, is Ramsey involved in the coronavirus debacle? So interesting, um, in just talking to the person who, run, who was running the public sector COVID uh, virus um, coordination, I said, well, you know, you've got all these private beds there. You've told them not to do elective surgery because they're using up um, 
PPE uh, and um, resources, why don't you contract out to them so that you use both the public and the private to meet the need, possible need going forward? And they did exactly that. In fact, they what they did is they commandeered the bids of the private. So all those ICU bids and so on and so on, instead of standing idle, were ready to go if we had this huge uh, outbreak, which we expected. So it was interesting. The private sector come of, really came of age uh, recently and was proved to how important it is to the whole of Australia by being shown it has all these ICU beds and so on and so on, all ready to go to help with the, the COVID-19, really meshed in with the public, and which proved that it is as good as the public. The private is as good as the public. That's very unusual around the world. That's fantastic. And Australia have got a grip on the whole COVID thing for now, haven't they? Um, yeah, Patrick, you're, you're, a, well you're a massive rugby, rugby fan and you use rugby analogies when marketing. Um, can you give us an example? Well, um, when I arrived, we decided, my, Deline, my wife, um, she dragged me out of Rhodesia, um, screaming, shouting, I'm not going to leave, I love the place and so on and so on. But when we got here, one of the first things we decided, we are going to become Australians. We're going to become Australia. And although I was so keen on the spring bucks, et cetera, et cetera, I, had, I read all the books and I went to various tests, I decided I'm going to get behind Australia. And it, Australia has um, produced results way above the size of their rugby. And, uh, and I was always very impressed with that. Then I was fortunate with Rat Ramsey's that the Ramsey people were very much behind rugby. So I thought, well, if you're building up a very special um, culture and you're starting from nothing and people feeling, well, have we got a future and all that sort of thing. One of the things is to latch onto being similar to a sport. And I use rugby because that was my love anyway, as a similarity to Ramsey's. And I used to use uh, rugby, um, uh, how we've done in rugby as a sort of a, a binding of all. Now, don't forget that there are not many people that watch rugby in Australia. And yet, so I remember two things. At, at one of my conferences, and we used to have a major conference every year, which was all about binding and, and, and feeling, a, developing a con. I read out a poem on um, uh, the Australian rugby team, produced for the Australian rugby team, but I changed it right at the end to being the Ramsey way. And I remember reading this poem about we will, we will be victorious and, we'll, and all the hardships of being a rugby player in Australia and so on. And amazing, it just came over and you could almost feel the tears in the room. And that was the rugby um, sort of song was a type thing. And the, at, at the meeting, I had a chap called Tim Gavin. And, um, and he gave a talk on rugby and how similar the, the feeling of developing a winning uh, team um, is like running a company with, a, with a, a vision and so on and so on. And so it sort of meshed the two. So I, I've used that. So, and then, of course, a lot of our doctors are very strong rugby followers and so on. So we used to, we didn't spend money on marketing. We spent money on taking doctors to rugby and so on. So it worked very well. I just thought sport intertwined with business and a business that had coming from nowhere 
worked very, very well. So in, in, in Australia, of course, as well. So who do you support, Wallabies or the Springboks? Oh, no question. Wallabies, Wallabies. Okay. And then secondly, the Springboks. Yeah. And, and uh, I got to say, I now have to say, well, I don't follow the Wallabies all that much because they don't win very much. So. No, Ever, you know, I mean, wasn't the World Cup incredible? Um, do you know our own homegrown Zimbabwean Antipodean uh, David Pocock? Very well. Well, when I say very well, yes, 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 yes. I used to be quite involved with rugby and admin and so on as well. And uh, yeah, Pocock has been fantastic. He's been, and what I like about Pocock, he's never given up his... Uh, African uh, roots, his feel for Africa, and he goes back there and so on. So he's been a, um, um, a great ambassador for uh, Africa, as well as being an Australian rugby player. Well, I hope to interview him one day. But talking about Africa, let's go back to your childhood, Pat. I knew your mum, Jane, very well, but I didn't know your dad. By all accounts, you, were, um, you weren't very well off in the early days, were you? No, it was a pretty tough time. My father left my mother when I think I was about two or three. I still remember the, the drama going on in the house and her crying and all that sort of thing. I remember sitting on her lap one night and I must have been only, yeah, three, three, four, not even that. And she was in tears and so on. What, what is it, mummy? What is it? And she was, oh, you know, daddy's leaving. And so, but we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. And so on. So, I remember that in, I don't know what age I was, but I remember the trauma of a breakup in the family. Uh, and we moved out of the house that we had into a flat. And there was uh, uh, five of us in the flat. Um, and we're, it was only a two bedroom flat. And one of the bedrooms was taken up by my grandmother. So you can see- Bella the, <laughs> the opera singer, Bella Kay, yeah. Bella Kay, Bella Kay, mm. a very Scottish dar. Um, um, disciplinarian boy, was she a disciplinarian? The Rhodesian Nightingale. Yeah, that would be a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> the memories were are, are pretty, pretty horrendous. Anyway, and, and my sister was nine years older. My brother was eleven years older. So I grew up very much as an only child, and my poor mother had to work her butt off to see us through every month and I remember the month starting with meat, mince or whatever it was. Uh, and then later on it was that we got back into the rice and pastas and so on, but at least we were fed and we were close as a family. So that was good. But you could always tell when the, the month had come to an end and we were starting a new month because, hey, there's mince again, yay. So, um, wow. And I grew up quite lonely. I got to say I grew up fairly lonely because my brother and sister were that much older. My mother worked her butt off, came home and just could only wait to rest uh, and so on. So I um, became friendly with, uh, with my friends became my, my life more than my family, funny enough, because that's how it was. And so I grew up fairly insecure. Um, and I guess that's why I really always wanted to try and be successful there. And I used that insecurity to actually drive me um, and didn't have much love and everything at home. So, but, and yet I've got to say this, I love my life in, in Rhodesia. I look back with it a great warmth. It, you know, Rhodesia was a fantastic place to grow up in, the sport, the, the schooling, the friendships and so on. So while my home life wasn't a fantastic, my life in Rhodesia, I remember with great warmth. 
Um, my mum tells um, quite a funny story about when you were born. Um, I think your mum, you guys were living on Livingston Avenue or Livingston Road in Salisbury. Anyway, number two, number two, Livingston Avenue. Number two, Livingston. And my mum and her younger sister Susan, and I think Susan was only a couple of years older than you. I'm not quite sure. Um, took the bus across town to see this newborn baby. Um, Susan obviously was just a little girl. Um, and your mum, amazingly, all things considered, considered, managed to raise all three of your kids on her own. But uh, um, on this particular day, soon after you were born, I mean, you were a tiny little baby. She was uh, typically rather distracted. Um, and then when she looked up, baby Pat had disappeared. Um, and she ran down the road and there she found Susan walking down the road about to board a bus with you cradled in her arms. And she said, <laughs> and she said well, where, where are you taking the baby? Well, I'm taking him home. But you can't, he belongs to me, Jane said. And Su <laughs> Susan just burst into tears and bawled all the way home, having thought that they were going to keep you for, her, for themselves. There you go. I didn't even know about that, but there you go. Somebody wanted me. Yay! Somebody wanted you, but probably you wouldn't be quite so successful now. <laughs> and, well, and now, Pat, you're, you're writing a book. Um, it, it doesn't have a title yet, does it? But the book is about um, your life in Australia, is it? Uh, it's a bit, of, a bit of everything, because my life in Rhodesia... Um, as I said, was quite lonely. I don't remember my mother once saying she loved me, which was interesting. Um, and I did quite well at rugby. I was the rugby captain for the uh, school. Don't know why, because when, when they sat down, I grabbed the ball and sat in the middle, I think, something like that. Um, but she never came to any of my rugby games, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, I still remember all that, that, you know, and so that's in the book, the, the start in my life, but also with a lot of friendship in Rhodesia, then Cape Town University and uh, getting very involved in um, Cape Town University, the social life, but the politics, we couldn't go overboard in the politics because we were students coming down from Rhodesia. Um, so the book takes you through life in Rhodesia, the greatness of life in Rhodesia in those days, I loved it. And then... Um, going back to Rhodesia afterwards and starting in a firm called Triggers and what a fantastic organization that was for me to start out to get myself going. And That's I right. I mean, my, my aunt Susan ended up working at Triggers for yes, you, didn't yes, she? Yes, yes, yeah. Nepotism. <laughs> she, which I, I took her on well, and she was a great success. Well, she deserved it considering she tried to steal you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Getting payback. <laughs> Um, and so then, then the book goes into coming to Australia um, with absolutely nothing. Having been tried to, Alan Krieger, as I say, they were great people to work for, um, tried to get me to stay. And I remember going in with a CV and saying, can you sign this? Because, uh, you know, I'm definitely going. And he read it and he said, well, first of all, who is this guy? <laughs> and I said, look, it's a slightly embellished CV, but uh, don't worry about it. I think I can meet most of those criteria. <laughs> So it was the day before they, it was before they could Google. So I was coming across with a, uh, a bit of an embellished CV. And as you touched, we came with, and, and we left a, a pretty good life in Rhodesia. And it was Deline that said, come on, we're going. We don't think this new government's going to be a good one. And she, she took one look at Mugabe. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but she said, 
don't like the look at him. I think we've got to go now. And I was saying, hey, this is the time. Let's, you know, we've gone through some tough times. Anyway, we came over with um, three children, uh, one in nappies being Tristan, our youngest one, and then Zane and uh, Jason, um, as a CV, as I say, no job, and $2,000 in the bank. And that's all we had to start with nothing. So, uh, yeah, so there you go. I mean, it's incredibly brave, and, and to think that what you were leaving behind, I remember, and this was 41 years ago when I last saw you, I remember clear as day your stunning home outside of Salisbury, um, and especially you speaking about your childhood, you know, having no money, but your home was the epitome of urbane. It reminded me of a James Bond set with all the chrome and leather furniture and the shag pile carpet. It was absolutely divine, especially for us kids coming from a farmhouse. Yeah. Do you, do you miss that life at all? Or you just put that behind you and said, right, let's get on. Well, I guess it's life in general, isn't it? Once you make a move, you've got to leave it behind and you start again. And as you say, Thanks for saying that. Um, it was a fantastic house looking over the Ruhr Valley. Uh, and we had about, about 200 sheep. Uh, we had a, a thousand chickens. Uh, and you know, we had servants everywhere. I don't know if you're allowed to call them that, but they were fantastic people to have working with you. Um, and it was just a great life. And that's what I was saying. We've gone through this, um, this war period, uh, with a, and we, was, we used to go to bed with guns next to us and so on, and I'm sure you know all about that being um, a, a tobacco farmer. Um, and then I said, look, the world's going to pile money in here. It's all going to be, let's keep, and the firm I was with, Triggers, was all ready to blossom. And it took quite a lot of guts to say, we're giving all of this up and go to, with no, uh, we couldn't take our furniture out because we pretended we were going on holiday because you got more money out if you went on holiday than if you immigrated. So we took more money being the $2,000 rather than say the thousand, whatever it was, and then immigrated from here once I got a job. But it was my wife, Deline, that said, come on, if we're gonna make a move, let's do it now. If we stay any longer, we will never go. So it was a huge gutsy move to give up all that. And the first, I know you said, I. I uh, I only joined Ramsey's after about eight years since I was I got in and those first ten years eight to ten years boy they were tough they were tough I think I just kept ahead of being fired a few times I <laughs> uh, went into a job managed to do pretty well and then thought oh I better move now and go to the next one and the next one so I went through about three or four jobs in, in, in eight years before I found my feet at Ramsey's but each time I went to a job it was bettering myself but yeah. to come over with virtually nothing leaving as you've just said a fantastic fantastic place and everything and Rhodesia I loved it loved it loved it the people and to start again so it was pretty mm. tough and and have you or your family or your kids been back to Zimbabwe been back to their roots at all yeah so what we did about three, 10 years ago I guess um, uh, the whole family went back to Zimbabwe uh, and we did a tour of the world, to tell you the truth. And I was very lucky that by that stage, Ramsey's had hospitals overseas. So we visited some of them and that sort of thing. So we went back to Zimbabwe and we saw a lot of the people that were still there. It was fantastic. The whole family went down to Cape Town, went to Cape Town University up in the hill. And then we went to London and we saw Susan. Um, fantastic. Where she was staying and various people. 
um, and then we went to, uh, to across the whole of America, and then we came back, and Tristan went back to his job in uh, Canada, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, we went back to Zimbabwe to show them our fantastic life in Zimbabwe. And in those days, and I noticed more than it was about twenty years ago, at least it was still quite, it was still functioning. It was still functioning. It was still yeah. functioning. Yeah, yeah. And they loved it. They were very pleased to be. And I'm glad we went there to show them what it was like. In fact, it might have been even more than 20 years, 30 years ago, what it really was like. Because we've, we've been here nearly 40 years now. I mean, you obviously have the can-do spirit, and so do Zimbabweans. I mean, I, I was back in November, and I just couldn't believe how people just get on with things, despite the government again and again yes. and again. Yep. you know, screwing up. Anyway, look, Pat Greer, or Sir Pat Greer, we're out no, of time. No, 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 you mustn't do that. Well, <laughs> way above my... my Listen, my, we, we are literally out of time. Um, but thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me and sharing your really inspirational story with my listeners. I know you're a man who can't sit still, so just to end off, what's, uh, what are you planning in the future, other than the book? Well, since retiring and moving to a place called Byron Bay, it's got a lot of can-do in this area. Um, and I've got quite involved in the community here. I thought I'm not going to sit in, sit in my, my rocking chair. So I've got involved in trying to convert the railway track, the old railway track of about 135 kilometers into a walking and bicycling track, a world-class walking bicycling track, a rail trail. So I'm very involved there. And one day we will do that we've got uh, money to start that then i'm also on the area health board um, and i'm also chairman of a, an organization called social futures which is fantastic it's looking after the needy tendering out to the public to look after the needy and then i got involved in uh, mentoring starting a company not a company an organization that mentors businesses in this region called the Saudo group so i've got very involved and there's so many many very good people here, go, go, go people. And I'm enjoying being with my family and my wife, Deline. And yeah, it's thoroughly enjoying myself, Pete, thoroughly enjoying myself. Fantastic. I mean, the railway project, uh, that's the first I've heard of it. It sounds a bit like the High Line in New York, where they yeah. redevelop that old disused railway that goes right the way from, you know, Greenwich Village all the way up into uptown. And it's just an incredible way of getting, of walking yeah, right yeah. the way across Manhattan. Look, That's Pat, what I want to do here. 135 uh, kilometers going through some of the most beautiful countryside in Australia. So, yep, one day it'll happen. My God, thank uh, Look, brilliant talking to you, Pat. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. Very, very pleased. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, take care. Love to the family. Thank you. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.